namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa aparudhade sangamatasataura So this is the opportunity, as I keep suggesting on these occasions, that it's that chance to reflect on the way it is. And this is cultivating the path of liberation. So what I say, you, you can hear what I say and then how it affects you. And this you can know for yourself. Because my, since I'm the speaker of this event, then, then my words are, are, have an effect on you in some way. Either you like, don't like, agree, disagree, get confused, inspired, or angry. But it's you that know the what's going on inside your mind at this time. And that you that knows is, is conscious awareness. And then you, you, your habit pattern is to think in terms of good, bad, confused, clear, inspiring, uninspiring. These are words you, you might used to describe how you feel. But the point of this reflection is to be the awareness itself, not the critic, not the person that agrees or disagrees, but being the pure conscious awareness here and now. So in religious parlance, of course, they talk about freedom or liberation or enlightenment. So these are words, very pleasant words. We brought up to want to be free. We all want to be enlightened, liberated from suffering. So these words affect us. Uh, do we know what it is? What's freedom? What's enlightenment? What is liberation? Because we know the definition, the dictionary, you can look it up in any dictionary and you can get a, another definition in words for freedom. <clears throat> so that you don't need to bother with in trying to, to figure out what freedom is or enlightenment or, or liberation, but in witnessing the way it is. 
being the witness to life rather than the owner of it. So when I refer to being the owner is when you grasp everything. So what I say, you listen to these words, you hear the words that I'm that are coming forth at this time and they affect you. And you then you understand, don't understand, confused, not confused, like, don't like. But that's how you react to what you hear or experience. And we're, so we're not caught in just trying to convert you into agreeing with what I say. It's not an exercise in, in trying to convert you into Buddhism or for you to become monks or nuns, trying to convince you by trying to uh, make things sound what, uh, like what you want to hear. But at this moment, this, the teaching of the Buddha is one pointing to this here and now reality that we're all, that we all are at this moment. But each separate individual is, unless they are free, and enlightened and liberated, then they're caught up in their usual habits of liking, disliking, agreeing, or disagreeing. So in, in discussing Dhamma, like, <clears throat> because Dhamma, as, as we get it in a printed form, translated from Pali language, Sanskrit language, ancient languages of India, you know, so we have to do our best to try to get appropriate meanings to these ancient languages in English. But, um, and so, you know, the words are limitations. How can you get, how you get exact meaning of, of the Indian concept of dukkha or suffering because it's changed now. Life is, has become very different than what it was 2,500 years ago. A different culture, a modern European culture, high technology, modern science, psychology, and so when we try to figure things out with, with the English language, it has its good points. It's not to be disparaged or despised, but it is limited. Because when we bind ourselves to verbal definitions, when we want to understand everything through reason and logic, then we're still caught in the samsaric delusion that we are a separate form, that my separateness, I'm separate from you, this is the ultimate reality. Because that's how we've been conditioned to believe that. And it seems very real, you know, most of us operate, have operated much of our lives with that with that unchallenged assumption. 
And when we just depend on sensory experience, then the senses are very untrustworthy. <clears throat> so like when we, we, you know, modern education is all about acquiring knowledge, definitions of freedom, liberation, enlightenment. Words like Nibbana, well, you know, that's a Pali word. And then we, we try to, what does that really mean in English? And so they give various definitions, trying to get the proper equivalence in the English language to the Pali word Nibbana, which is liberation. But these, where we're just trying to find words to describe reality, we can't do it. You can't describe Dhamma. When we use the word Dhamma as ultimate reality, absolute reality, you know, what is that in terms of experience through the senses? Can we sense Nibbana? or liberation or enlightenment, what, you know, are, are we enlightened or is anyone here in the uh, Dhamma Hall enlightened and who's enlightened, who isn't enlightened, who's liberated, who's free? You might believe nobody is or somebody is. You might believe I am, but you're still thinking in terms of of separateness, of your cultural conditioning, the, the language that you think in, which is all basically conditioned phenomena, trying to understand other phenomena. So can one phenomenon know another phenomenon? So we tend to want to know things that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. That's the real world, the sensory world that we, that is separate from us. So in our lifespan, we live our lives, you know, looking at things, listening, speaking, smelling, tasting, touching, and everything's going outward toward objects of the senses that, that we identify with. My eyes, my ears, my nose, my tongue, my body, my brain. These are, you know, this is how we think or speak. Our cultural conditioning, our social conditioning. So it's, we call this conventional reality. We're not dismissing that. In Pali it's Samut Satcha. Lumpocha was always talking about Samut Satcha and Paramatta Satcha. So these Pali words, Samut, Samut Satcha is the conventional reality. Convention, the convention that we're experiencing at this time, the form the languages that we 
have, that we think in, that we use, their convention, conventional reality, the objects of the senses, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think is, is convention. But can, can a convention be, can we, can a convention reality be ultimate reality or paramata sacha? Ultimate absolute reality, freedom, ultimate freedom, enlightenment, liberation. We can see freedom, like many of us are brought up in cultures where they talk about freedom as our human right. And so freedom, freedom marches, freedom movements, freedom to be yourself, freedom of speech, are, you know, cries of political cries or social cries. We, we all want to be free. What, what, what does that really mean that if I'm free? If I'm really free just to do what I want, what I feel like, is freedom of speech just every thought that comes into my mind, I have the right to say it no matter how offensive or stupid it might sound. Is, you know, is freedom of speech just uh, the right of every human being to to say anything at all at any time they want? It would be a madhouse. So we have uh, another conventional form that is very uh, exercise at this time of political correctness. Now, political correctness is a limitation on free speech. So there are, you know, people getting caught in controversies around freedom of speech to teach uh, communism or fascism is, is a, can be considered treason. And yet freedom of speech implies we're free to, to, say, to teach whatever we want. We can teach, you know, we have freedom to do what we want, say what we want, what we feel. So freedom is seen as a kind of ultimate goal of kind of personal liberation as a person to be myself, to do what I want, live my life as I feel I want to, not limited and bound by rules, regulations, precepts, commandments, laws. And if such freedom is given to any individual, is that the freedom that we talk about, that we, that we consider in religious tradition. In Buddhism, especially when, when it's about being free from delusion. So what is, what, when we, this English word freedom, Enlightenment? What is that? What, is, what do you mean by that? What is, who gets enlightened? What is enlightenment? You get, 
you know, and then you hear, read scriptural examples of monks or nuns getting enlightened and they experience earthquakes and devas singing in the heavens. And, and so we think of enlightenment as some big, fantastic event. <clears throat> but if any of us get enlightened, then the earth is going to be an earthquake and a, a luminous light that comes over the planet. And the devas in the heavenly realms will start singing joyous songs. That's convention about freedom, you know, so freedom is joyful. And it shakes the, the delusions, the earth, the conventions of the, uh, the conventional reality. They no longer have a meaning, they no longer have the, the intimidating quality that we give them when we're unenlightened. So when we live in a world of convention, then there is a lot to worry about. You know, there's uh, so many doomsday predictions, uh, you know, and uh, changing societies, watching uh, history of civilization and the fall of civilizations on YouTube channels. It's fascinating how many great civilizations have arisen and fallen. What happens when a, when a marvelous civilization suddenly disappears? Because we assume our civilization will just go on and get better unless we, you know, the doomsday scenario is a nuclear war where we destroy everything. That's the worst possible thing you can think of. But civilization is convention, it's limitation, it's bondage. When you join the Sangha, become a bhikkhu, you've got 227 precepts. That's a kind of bondage. You're limited in action and speech. So when we take that personally, we, we feel a kind of sometimes uh, being suffocated or bound up in, in precepts or laws or rules because we're not free to just do what we feel like doing in the moment or follow our desires. Because as a, in a separate individual, no matter how we're if we are samanas, monks or nuns, anagarikas and so forth, are, are these, is this bondage that, uh, you know, we, you know, are we binding ourselves to limitations where, you know, if we're lay people, we can be free, we could have wine in the evening and uh, cocktails and and uh, live a happy sexual life and do what we want. So, and that's freedom. Freedom to do what we want or 
the freedom to understand the way it is. So the whole point of the form that we're experiencing through these limitations of Vinaya is, is not to see it so in personal terms, but to use it. It's a tool to use to limit and, but the point to limitation to bind us to a, a moral form of action and speech in order to understand freedom, enlightenment for ourselves. So the, in, in here in Amaravati, the whole point of this monastery, this community is for liberation, for freedom, for enlightenment. It's not just a personal lifestyle that we adopt. Or just being identified as Buddhists or to convert nice Christian people into Buddhism or anything like that. It's to realize for oneself absolute reality, ultimate reality, Nibbana. So Nibbana, you know, it's oftentimes defined as the blowing out. I've, I've read that in, in uh, Buddhist literature, the blowing out. But that doesn't really inspire me, the words blowing out, where uh, it's uh, Dasa Bhikkhu, the sage of southern Thailand, he called it the, the cooling down, like when you cook rice and it's hot and you let it cool down is Nibbana. <laughs> And I find that more, more to my taste. Probably because it's about food. <laughs> but but uh, Nibbana then is liberation, is freedom. It, you can say it, it is cool. It's a, it's the, the fire, the, the heat, the pain of ignorance is gone. And one no longer is, is believing in the way one thinks or feels or experiences out of habit, out of conditioning. One is no longer believing in it, caught in the momentum of just repeating habits endlessly till you drop dead. So freedom, enlightenment, liberation, nibbana are words. And so I keep pointing out that words are creations. They're made up by ignorant human beings, usually. So languages are, they are conditions that are created by human beings. They're not, you're not born with a language. So 
to, to, as I encourage you all to investigate words themselves, the limitation of thought, how quickly it comes and goes, and how a thought, a memory, will affect you emotionally. But what is enlightenment then? Who gets enlightened? You know, so we want to find out who is who in this community is enlightened, or in Thailand, who which Kuba Ajahn is enlightened, or in Sri Lanka, which monks are enlightened masters? And we talk about enlightenment is impossible in this day and age. I've heard. Buddhist monks make claims like that, that you can't attain stream entry anymore because uh, uh, it was possible at the time of the Buddha, but no longer possible in modern life. And, and of course, that's another series of ideas or beliefs. But that's not very helpful for anything. It kind of misses the whole point of the life that, we, that we're living in this form. It's a conventional form. It's conventional reality. But just attaching to forms without mindfulness, without reflecting, just being conditioned into being a Buddhist, is not nirvana, not liberation, not enlightenment. One of my, in my early stages, when I was at Samanera, before I met Ajahn Chah, I had, was very much interested in enlightenment itself. Because I was, you know, I was about 31 years old when I was ordained as a Samanera, and, and I really f was world weary at the age of 31. Not that life had treated me badly, or I, but it just didn't have, I was kind of weary of it. I couldn't see any point in, following any worldly path that I could imagine, even in, I've got a very vivid imagination, so I could imagine all kinds of possibilities. But something in me was not, uh, no, no longer convinced that, that just getting everything I wanted as a, individual person was going to bring me any great form of permanent happiness or freedom. So I became, you know, I became interested in Buddhism and in, uh, went to Thailand particularly to find a teacher to teach me how to meditate. Because I kind of assumed that meditation, Buddhist meditation, was a way to to uh, realize and what enlightenment is for oneself. 
But then the self-image was, well, I'm too imperfect to ever get enlightened, but I can probably live a more virtuous life. So with good intentions, um, living one year as a samanera, a novice monk, and then as a bhikkhu, you know, the, the lifestyle was, I quite liked, I liked the Lumpa Cha as a teacher, I liked the monastery, the, the country, and so it was better than any kind of thing I could think of doing at the time. But the emphasis that Lumpa Cha always made was on finding out for yourself. So it wasn't a a kind of conversion therapy that I was experiencing, but uh, the kind of helpful conditions to instruct how to live a life within a limitate, limitation through action and speech, and at the same moment be completely free which seemed like an op they were opposites. Vinaya seems like bondage, Dhamma seems like freedom. So the Four Noble Truths, the, the first sermon of the Buddha after enlightenment is a very profound teaching pointing to liberation very directly. And I started just reflecting on, on, uh, on what suffering really is, because I understand suffering, you know, as an adult male, I'd had enough suffering in 31 years of life, and I know what that is. And uh, so then, but, and then the proclamation, there is suffering, and I, I didn't doubt that, but it often kind of puzzled me of why an enlightened master like Gautama the Buddha would give his first sermon about suffering. Why didn't he give his first sermon about enlightenment? Why didn't he see there is enlightenment? And so it was just my Western mindset that saw, you know, was trying to understand what the Buddha was really attempting in his first sermon. And through this kind of reflectiveness, then I began to see how that it was a, not a kind of doctrinal position or some kind of ultimate statement, a metaphysical reality, but a common experience that every human being has as they suffer. Life is experience of suffering, these forms, that we identify with are forms that suffer. And that's their very nature. They're not meant to be free and permanently happy. You know, because their very nature is to 
age or get sick, loss of loved ones, uh, being subject to conditions out of our control, natural catastrophes or wars, political upheavals, all these are, you know, are, when you study the histories of ancient societies like the Roman society, then, uh, you know, it, it was once the dominant culture or Chinese society. You know, they, may, they had great societies of, of investigation of the world and, and uh, success in agriculture and in inventing machines and all kinds of wonderful things and then they disappear. Because that's the nature of the conditioned realm. So when you identify with the conditioned realm, then suffering, there is suffering. It's natural to this, this uh, state that we identify with, because it's going to change, even when it's a good state, a happy state, fortunate state, you can't sustain it. You can't take it with you. So then freedom itself comes not through trying to live forever or being able to do what you want, what you desire, whatever desires come into your mind, you, you're free to follow them. because that kind of freedom is bondage. Just developing ways of life that are disruptive or ruinous or lead to madness, to drunkenness, to addiction, to despair, depression, So these very negative states that we experience, the suffering becomes a noble truth. And a noble truth is to be understood. It's not to be, you know, just resign yourself to uh, that life is miserable and suffering. That's not the point. Buddha pointed, there is suffering and there is the end of suffering. So what exactly is the end of suffering? And then you investigate, you reflect on suffering, you understand it. That just conventional reality is not, no matter how virtuous and good it might be, it's still the illusion of being separate is suffering itself being, seeing yourself always as a separate person in a sangha. We suffer in the sangha because we can still see ourselves in terms of our relationships of seniority, of our personal reactions to personalities, the ones we like, the ones we don't like. It's all suffering.
So Naroda, or the third noble truth, is the end of suffering. So in the, this Four Noble Truths teaching, the end, there is the end of suffering. What is that? What is Naroda? What is Nibbana? What is liberation? Is it possible in the, while still alive in this separate form? And so in our practice, when we talk about meditation, then we begin to realize, like this, this uh, incessant reminding you that I do about your true nature is not what you're thinking, not your body, but conscious awareness, consciousness itself is here and now. You know, so can you deny that? Can you say you're never, you can assume you're not conscious when you're asleep because you, you, you know, you're not, I think you're not experiencing the objects of senses. Your senses are resting. But you can still dream when you're asleep and then you start imagining or, you know, but the conventions of monastic form or English life or laws or rules and regulations are no longer obstructing you. So you're, in a dream you can be wandering here and there and, and they, they don't have the boundaries that, that civilization gives us when we're awake. But consciousness is, begins, you begin to, begin to notice behind the movement and the changing conditions of sensory experience is the silent, is silence itself. It's like the space in this room, in this Dhamma hall. It's here and now, it's silent. It allows forms to manifest, to come and go into it. It's making no demands whether you're, you're virtuous or not, about whether you're a good monk or a bad monk. Space doesn't care one single bit about your virtues or lack of them or your attainments as a person. Consciousness is similar to space. Because space is in consciousness itself. So consciousness is perfect. And that's Dhamma. But not my consciousness as a, some kind of, you know, saying my consciousness and then your consciousness is separate. We begin to realize, know for ourselves, have what we call insight into ultimate reality in which we know consciousness or Dhamma in which there's no suffering. There's no suffering in consciousness. There's no 
attachment, there's no desire. Desires can manifest through these forms. These are desire forms. So, uh, you know, when we identify with the form, the human form, male or female, is all about desire. Wanting to eat something or, you know, everything is procreating the species. Sexual desire is natural to the form. Male and female forms, survival instincts are natural. They're not cultural, they're what we all share. But we see ourselves in personal ways according to cultural identity or class identities. We can see ourselves as superior. Uh, you know, we're, we're better than somebody else. And that, nobody's better than anybody else. That's what the ignorant mind creates. You know, so societies are built on slavery, on serfdom, on workers, on aristocrats, on monarchs. We're going to have a, a coronation in a few days in England. We'll have a new monarch. And what is that? Is that, is the monarch, is King Charles better than you or I? You know, we can according to class identity, he's, he's very, he's royal and we're not. So being royal is special. Being ordinary citizen of Britain is, is ordinary. So ordinary and royal, aristocrat, a leader of celebrity. These are identities that people have as individuals. But ultimate reality, this consciousness is unitive, is not divisive in any way. There's no thing better than anything else. So that's freedom, to realize that there's nothing you have to do or become or prove as a person, as a monk or a nun. You don't have to spend your life trying to perfect yourself as a person, or change the world, or, or do anything. It's ultimate freedom to be and to respond to life as we experience doing good, refraining from doing evil. But it's no longer seen in personal, like I'm doing good and I am refraining from doing evil. It's no longer taken as some kind of personal identity. It's just natural to the species. Love and kindness, compassion flow through these forms but they're not personal qualities. So freedom within this life, within these limitation, limited forms, is possible. 
It's our true nature. It's realizing your true nature. It's not acquiring freedom or getting your true nature from some outward source or through various practices, but through understanding suffering and its causes and seeing that, you know, and that allies itself with wisdom where we have insight into letting go of desires, not getting rid of them, because that's what would be like something to do. I have to get rid of all my desires. But to understand them, to understand suffering doesn't mean you don't experience suffering. The forms are suffering. Getting old is suffering. Sickness is suffering. The COVID pandemic is suffering. Cancer is suffering. Because that's the way these forms operate. They, they're born, they grow up, get old, get sick and die. That's the natural flow of sankhara, of phenomena. It is changingness. It's imperfect. You can't perfect the forms because their very nature is imperfect. But your true nature is perfect. So in uh, this particular tradition, we call that Dhamma, apparent here and now, timeless, akalika Dhamma. When you begin to realize you, there's, your experience of life is always now. You're experiencing now through, your, through listening to my words. And then you may forget everything after I leave or tomorrow. Or you may remember everything I've said tomorrow. But then that's memory in now. So Akalika Dhamma is timeless. It's eternity, apparent here and now. And that, that's the reflections on Dhamma, this word from the Pali language. So in this tradition, when we take refuge in Dhamma, that's a real refuge. It's not just some kind of vague idea of powerful forces or energies in the universe or, or something we have to get, but something we are right now. But through ignorance, we don't know that because right now is my body. It's like this. It feels like this. And my emotions, how, how I feel or emotionally feel at this moment, this is me. This is mine. So the, when you actually wake up to the fact you're not a body, that you're not emotions or memories or thoughts or definitions or words 
What's left is consciousness. Doesn't come and go and change, doesn't die, is, wasn't, isn't born, doesn't die. Consciousness is, allows space and form to manifest. Without consciousness, there wouldn't be any space. And if there's no space, there's no form. So in that sequence of consciousness and space, then earth, fire, water, and air, we begin to, just the, the reflections on those six elements, consciousness is here and now. So that's a fact. That's reality. And it's not like a, a belief. You know you're conscious. At this moment, everybody does. So that, you start from there, from here and now. Then we begin to be mindful of the causes of suffering. That we have a blind attachments to conditions, to the forms, to ideals, to what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. And that ignorant attachment to form is the cause of suffering. So the, the second noble truth is about letting go of, of these attachments. So letting go is not, not like you're going to do anything, but just free yourself from when you begin to recognize attachment, how you attach to forms, to ideas, to views, opinions, perceptions. Then, then the insight is to let go of them. And that's liberation. That's freedom from the ignorance that where, because ignorance is the cause of suffering. So I offer this as a reflection. Mm -hmm.